My grandson is about to finish first grade. Stone here will be left upon another 
which will not be torn down. So they're in a state of, well, we thought we understood, but what's going on? They just had no concept of what lay in the future at this point. He's told them over and over that he's going to be uh, killed, he's going to die, he's going to raise the dead on the third day. But it, none of this seems to have filtered into their heart and soul. They are so much caught up in what they have always thought, always heard, and always hoped for, and how they have conceived of it. That brings us to two related questions in verse 3. Just saw these two. I read those two. Moving on to verse three. Now they have went down out the eastern gate, down the road, the very low point down in Kindred Valley, back up now, very high, even above the Temple Mount on the Mount of Olives. They're sitting there taking the rest. They're looking back upon the temple, and so Peter, James, John, and Andrew. You know this in the Book of Luke. Not named here. They come up to him and they begin to ask him questions. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They're associating the temple with the end of the age, the coming of the kingdom is what they mean. And they're expecting Jesus to reveal himself as a Messiah, become their um, political, military leader, and throw off the Roman rule and all the rest. So, but they're a little perplexed. They, they, they don't have any bearings here. So they ask two questions. Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Very interesting now. When we read this, we read the second coming when they say, what will be the sign of your coming? It's a very specific word in the Greek language, which means presence. It's used often in the New Testament in reference to the coming of the Lord for his church, the rapture, and even in reference to his second coming. When will you be present? When will you come and, and make yourself known and everybody knows you're here and you're here to take over and establish the kingdom? That's what they're asking. They're not thinking a second coming. They're not thinking a crucifixion. They're not thinking a resurrection. They, they, all this, in their mind, is at hand now. So, if you're telling us the temple's going to be destroyed, stone by stone, when's this going to happen? Now, with all that in mind, let's take a look at... Well, this was what they were seeing, by the way from the Mount of Olives, looking back from this high point up here, across. I inserted the temple uh, model there for you in yellow and blotted out the, the Islamic shrine because that wasn't there in those days. And so this is what they're looking at when they ask the question. This is what's on their mind. And they ask a two-part question, as we've already noted. The first question was this. When will these things happen? Now, by that they mean, when will the temple be destroyed? Because that's what he just told them. And they've kind of been dumbfounded, I think, from the time he told them that 
By the time they got over to the Mount of Olives, it was still in their mind. It's like, okay, now, we wouldn't think about the temple being destroyed here. Well, when's that going to happen? And how does that relate to your <coughs> messiahship and your kingdom? So basically what they're asking is then this. Uh, when will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question. And then, secondarily, what will be the sign of your coming as the Messiah, your revelation as the Messiah, in the end of this present age we're living in, which was the occupation of the Roman armies? Two-part question. Interestingly, we have to understand their questions from their point of reference. The word eschatology is a theological word which means last thing. The Jewish, the Jewish doctrine or teaching of the future. Now we, we had the same slide up last week, so this is kind of a review. The standard Jewish view of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah included a long period of time, followed by a period of tribulation, and then a singular coming of Messiah or revealing of Messiah to establish his kingdom. They considered the Roman occupation of their land as the tribulation stage. Now, when we look back on Old Testament prophecy, we realize those prophecies have to do with the tribulation of yet to come, which is detailed in the book of Revelation. But in their mind, they thought, well, this is it, because how, how much worse could it be? We don't have a, our own land, and the Romans are occupying, and they're exacting taxes, and we're mistreated, and all, all this. So they were equating those prophecies with the Roman occupation. <clears throat> and they looked expectantly for the revealing of the Messiah and his victory over the Romans to establish the kingdoms. This is their viewpoint. This is why they asked the question. So Jewish eschatology looks like this. The Old Testament period, followed by a shorter period of tribulation, and then the Messiah comes. And I've labeled it first, because we know he has two comings, first and second. They did not. But just so you'll know, the coming of the Messiah, the era coming down, and then the establishment of the kingdom. This is their, this is their prophetic chart in their mind. What they didn't see was the gap. And we discussed this when we went over Matthew 13 in the parables of the kingdom. The Old Testament prophet, you just didn't take any notice of this. And there is very little said of this in the Old Testament to their defense. Uh, it was a mystery, not revealed until New Testament times. So they don't see this gap. Now we know why the gap's there, and we know what fills the gap. And here's what fills the gap. The first coming is shifted from here back to here, but Christ has to die on the cross, be resurrected, ascend back to heaven, the Spirit comes, we have the establishment of the church, and this long period of time called the church age. Now, in Matthew 13, it was also referred to as the mystery form of the kingdom, and it encompasses all of this. Church age to the tribulation. I'm missing my pointer this morning, so sorry. But this, in blue, they missed. Coming to church age and then coming for the church, the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. None of that is in their mind. And a second coming is not perceived, not two. Now, I know Jesus is a master teacher, 
But he spent three years with people that are really, really <laughs> uh, difficult to uh, instruct in these things. That's all the Jews were. And he knows they will understand more as it unfolds. So, let's go back to the first question with this all in mind as a backdrop. When will these things happen? They mean, again, when will the temple be destroyed? Here's the answer. He didn't answer it. He leaves them hanging, so to speak. This question is not answered at all by Jesus in Matthew 24. Because, and I think this is what we need to understand, and we can see looking back, it is because the scripture had already answered the question. Daniel had already answered it. And they had, that before them, the rabbis, the, the Pharisees, the common man, the people in the, the synagogues, they had this information. They were aware of this prophecy. But they couldn't see it for what it was. Not fully revealed, the mystery not completely before them, and their preconceived ideas. So he doesn't answer something that they should already know. You know, if there's any evidence of anyone in that era that actually did understand this, it might have been Nicodemus, who along with Joseph of Arimathea went to the gravesite to prepare the body after the death. There is a lot of uh, questions about what were they doing with the amount of spices, anointment, and all that was needed to anoint a body at that juncture. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in John 3, said, What's going on? Who, who are you? Are you surely from God? You don't like his miracles. And Jesus said, Well, you have to be born again, or born from above. And he referenced him to a spiritual birth. Now that is revealed in the Old Testament. We won't go back into that. But if Nicodemus being a, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a student of the scripture, a scribe, whatever, he had way more biblical knowledge of the Old Testament than the common man. He may well have ascertained all of this and knew Jesus was going to die and be resurrected. Just an interesting sidelight. But we need to look at Daniel's prophecy. This is called the 70 weeks prophecy. Now listen. You may be aware of this. You may understand it. Some of you have never heard about it. have never had it put before you. I do not want this to become a detailed study of Daniel 9. So I'm going to breeze through this. But if you have desire to study it more, I have sheets you can pick up after class all about the 70 weeks prophecy, which will contain everything I've got on screen and can kind of help you understand it, put it into context. And so what I want you to do is just sit back and just take in what we're going to talk about. Because it, it speaks volumes to us of the perfection, the absolute 
perfect word of God and the prophecies, prophecies of God and the, the, the minute detail contained in them and the specifics that are fulfilled in such a way that it'll just, it really builds up our faith when we see this. I want you to sit back and take that in for a moment. If you want to study more, don't get hung up in the detail. We can talk about it if you have a question later, maybe help. But this will help if you take a moment. If you're really interested in the details of it. Daniel 9, 24. Daniel said, 70 weeks are determined for your people. This is a prophecy. So your people here are the Jewish people. For your people and for the holy city. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. The, the state of the Jewish nation. Which led to the two exiles and the... You know, everything that happened after that, even the 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Now that is what Jesus did when he died to redeem us. Make us reconcilable to God. Now that only happens if we place personal faith in him, that choice. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Now that's the kingdom. So we have the cross and the kingdom right there in Daniel 9.24. The Jews pretty much didn't see this, the cross. They had their eyes fixed on the kingdom. To seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's the Messiah. The anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. To identify and anoint him as the king and to take over and bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay. Let's move on first. Well, let's not move on to the next verse. Let's explain something first. When he says 70 weeks are determined, he's not talking about 70 times 7 days. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say weeks. In the Hebrew, it simply says 70 sevens. Let me tell you what the sevens are. 70 times seven somethings. Now, we know and understand looking back, this means 70 times seven years. Seven year increments times 70. We're going to talk about how we know in just a moment. And that's by trying to understand the prophetic year. So we can kind of go way forward and start looking back to really ascertain what's going on here. First of all, and this is probably out of sequence, the 70 weeks are weeks of years. So that means 490 years. 70 times 7 years equals 490 years. And after the passing, of 490 specific years, not just any years, specific years, because they're not always consecutive, as we're going to see. Remember, we've got that gap in there. After, passing, after the passing of 490 specific years, everlasting righteousness will cover the kingdom. So there's a 490-year time frame from Daniel's time when he prophesied, which actually stretched back, stretched forward a little bit from Daniel, I should say. When he identifies the, the and he was going to do this in a minute, so tell us when the 490 years start. When he tells us that, there's 490 years till the kingdom comes. But they're not consecutive years. There's a gap in there. 
We've already saw that because the Jews didn't see that gap. There's something that happens after the first 69 that stops it and something that happens to start the last seven years. Now, somebody has Revelation 11, 2, and 3. But, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Prophecy in the book of Revelation. The city of the sanctuary will be trodden by the, by the Gentiles for 42 months, three and a half years. He also mentions 1260 days. Again, three and a half years. But it's years only if you understand them in terms of a 360 day year. Our calendar divides a year into days and it's 365 for the most part. The prophetic year, as they did things from their lunar calendar, was a 360 day year. So, you take the 12, what was it, 1260 divided by. 360, you get three and a half. The prophetic year has to be 360 days. So it's 360 days <coughs> times 70, and you get a total days, and so That's crucial. And it's mentioned twice here in Revelation 11, 2, and 3. Now, who has Revelation 12, 6, and 14? Um, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman here, Israel, flees into the wilderness. We're going to come to this in Matthew 24 shortly. When the Antichrist besieges Jerusalem, second half of the tribulation period, Jesus said, flee to the mountains, don't look back. And God prepares a place for their sanctuary there. And in Revelation 12, 6, it tells us to be for 1260 days. Half, half of a seven year period, second half of the tribulation. Did you read verse 14? Yes. So. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So we have three chronological <laughs> indicators from the previous verse in chapter 11 to these that we just read. 42 months, 1260 days, and something called a time, a time and a half a time. And in that latter expression, uh, references three and a half years in a more symbolic way. But the specifics of the days and the months are there. So if you take that, then the 1260-day prophetic year, it starts, this 490-day, 490-year period starts specifically when the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is made. Now that was by Artaxerxes, Persian, who allowed Nehemiah 
to go back to build the walls. Now, Ezra came back to construct the temple. But this decree is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the Nehemiah uh, point in the thing. From that decree until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. I'm not sure why it's divided up into seven weeks and 62. It doesn't say. There's some specific speculation, but we won't get into that. But basically, he says, until from the time the decree goes out until Messiah is revealed, then he comes. There'll be 69 weeks. That's 483 years using the prophetic year. Before I move on to this verse. That 483 years, using the prophetic year as the <coughs> length for the year, runs out on the day of the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, the Lord is come. Now, the common people saw it. They accepted him. They in a sense, received him as Messiah, but not the nation, not the leaders, not the Sanhedrin, not the, the Pharisees, not the scribes. The nation and their leadership rejected him. From that point on, they said, we got it. Well, they'd already said it, but it was more important for them at that point on to get rid of him. So after 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Should be after 69 weeks, I think. Well, the seven weeks and the 62, it's still 69. He just divided them up. So basically, after Jesus comes on the triumphal end, this very week now, in which he gives the, the Olivet Discourse, after he comes, two things have to happen. The Messiah shall be cut off. That's the crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the prince that shall come. We're working back the Antichrist of the tribulation period comes from the Roman Empire. Now, don't, don't be constrained to say he has to be Italian. Because the Roman Empire that day was the whole of the known world in that Mediterranean area. So we don't need to get too specific. But the new Roman Empire under the Antichrist, that man who's yet to come, the same people from which he will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So when the Messiah is rejected, the day of the triumphal entry, the time frame of the 70 weeks prophecy stops. After it stops, the side is cut off and the temple is destroyed. 
Now here we'll conceptualize it for you. By the way, so far on your handout sheet, the two fill-ins are when and what. Probably got that. Answered. <laughs> and the second, the third fill-in is Daniel had already answered it in Daniel 9, 25, 27. Already answered it. Now that's where we're at. Now let's try to conceptualize this. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, March 5th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes and Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, occurs here. 69 weeks, 62 plus 7, 69 weeks elapsed, 483 years. The Messiah, who's not accepted, comes. They have the triumphal entry and everything leading up to that. Everything points to Jesus as the Messiah. But that day, the clock stops ticking. After that, the Messiah is cut off, April 3rd, AD 33. Then, sometime later, the temple is destroyed. We know that happened on August 6th, AD 70. We mentioned this last week. The Romans under General Titus came in, squashed a Jewish rebellion, destroyed the temple, annihilated the people, chased the remnants to Masada, who hold out there for a long time, and then eventually, completely, uh, well, they, they actually committed suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. But due to the Romans, everything was, Israel's done. Israel's gone at that point. Israel doesn't come back to 1948 as a nation. The church age is stretching in here. This is the part they didn't get. Then in Daniel 9, 27, first part of the verse, he says, Then, after the Messiah is cut off, after the temple is destroyed, then he, the prince of the people of the people of Shachan, just mentioned the Antichrist, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's the week that's left. 69 plus 1 is the total 70. So the clock doesn't start ticking again until the Antichrist makes his covenant with Israel and then their enemies and brings peace. And by the way, that means he'll allow the temple to be rebuilt. And that verse in 11, Matthew, or Revelation 11, says the angels measure the temple. He says, don't, don't measure the outer court. That's given to the Gentiles. That's where the Dome of the Rock stands, in that temple area, but it's in the Gentile court. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a war, a confrontation, a destruction of that for the temple to be rebuilt because the Arabs are Gentiles. Somehow the Antichrist is going to negotiate all that diplomatically, allow the temple to be rebuilt right there beside it. So now from that last verse, we can add that final week over here. That begins with the covenant made by the Antichrist in Israel. It begins that one last week for seven years, which will bring about the second coming of the Messiah. All this, see, in between, the Jews missed. So let's put it in. 
And what's the data on the side of the trends? It's like seven years after the COVID. That's as, as specific as we can get. That's a good reminder of that question. We do not know. Now, there's a lot of people who thought they have known over the years. You've probably read of these groups over the years. They set a date for Jesus to come back and. Everybody goes out and sells all their property and their businesses and their belongings and they go out and stand on the mountain and wait for Jesus to come. You see a problem with that? What are they going to do with the money they got from selling all that stuff if he comes? They're hedging their bets and he's not really, maybe he may not really come. I need to go back and buy these things back. Nobody knows. That's for sure. Now we need to move on to that second question. What will be the sign of his coming at the end of the age? Now this Jesus did answer. And he answers it from verse 4 all the way through chapter 25. All a part of the answer. Because this, they really didn't have this information like he's going to give it to them. When they ask, when will these things be? They ask that question shortly before Jesus' crucifixion. One of the reasons he didn't answer it, they, didn't, they couldn't equate the prophecy even if they wanted to at this point, unless they fully understood he was going to die. In a, in a couple of days, he's going to be crucified. The Messiah will be cut off. Then the temple destroyed. And they're saying in that first question, when will this happen? And he, he doesn't answer because they, it should be obvious when he dies, that's the sign the temple's going to be destroyed because that comes next after the clock stops. But the second question is, oh, we decided you're coming. Again, the word coming, presence. They're not thinking to come once, go away, come back. They're not thinking that. They're just thinking when you're going to reveal yourself and be, become known, and assume your duties as king. Jay, didn't they think that he had revealed himself, though, at this point? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Didn't they think he had already revealed himself at this point, though, with the triumphal entry? And... Yes. Isn't that why they were so excited? Yes, I, I think the disciples did. And so that's part of why they said, well, what's it going to happen? What's it going to happen? What's it going to happen? Shouldn't you, shouldn't, I think you're thinking, shouldn't you be set in the temple, you know, issuing orders and destroying armies? When's it going to happen? <coughs> now, then he told he's already told them that the temple's going to be destroyed, so I don't, I don't know how they're processing that. That maybe his becoming king will be the reconstruction of it, or, or whatever. But, I don't think they... The one thing they didn't seem to get is he's going to die. So he, he leaves all this hanging. They will understand more as it unfolds. As he dies, now they'll have to wait 80, 70, 30 plus years for the temple to be destroyed. 
But a lot of these disciples were still living, obviously, in AD 70. So John, who wrote the book of Revelation, it's pretty clear to him the time he gets to AD 90, 95, when he writes the book of Revelation. <laughs> and especially because John's one of the ones that asked this question. And what is unfolded in the book of Revelation is a detailed analysis of what Jesus covered in summary form in Matthew 24 and 25. So let's just take a look at our outline, our time base. The departure from the temple, they're, they're pointing out that the temple of Jesus is telling them it's going to be destroyed. Then we move on to chapter 4. Well, this also has two questions. Then we move on to chapter 4, the second part of our outline. He begins in chapter 24, verse 4, to give a prophetic overview of the tribulation period. They asked, this is a little confusing, I think, but they asked what will be the sign on that singular <laughs> and there is a specific sign that he's going to point out in chapter 24. But there's also all these other events that he tells us, tells them about that are also signs. They just asked for one because they didn't think he could be on that. But it's going to be a multifaceted description of all that's going to happen. Literally what he is saying is, the real tribulation period that they thought they were in for the Romans conquered, the real tribulation period which is to come, that's the sign in total. <coughs> that's the sign I'm going to be coming back very quickly. Within seven years, which they should have been able to figure it out at some point after this. So what we have beginning in verse 4 of chapter 24 is a prophetic overview of the tribulation. In verses 4 to 7, we have the first half. It's, it's really condensed, but let's whiz into it, okay? But on your study sheet, the second question, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Jesus answered this question in the discourse, what's called the Olivet Discourse, beginning in verse 4 through the rest of chapter 20, 24 and 25. And that was right before the outline, which on your sheet, now on the back, you have an expanded outline. The first half, verses 4 to 7. First, let's look at verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, See, who have been no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. By the way, Christ, New Testament word for Messiah, the anointed one. We read it, we, don't, we sometimes don't connect that. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, or I am the Messiah, and they will mislead many people. So, false messiahs, that would be point number one under the first half of tribulation. The false Christ will, many false Christs will arise during the first half of the tribulation period. The title Christ means anointed one or Messiah. 
This will occur during a time of great messianic expectation since the third temple will be rebuilt. Now, the covenant of the Antichrist allows the Jewish temple to be rebuilt. We know that has to be the case. And we're gonna, we haven't got there yet, but when we get down a little further in the Matthew 24 context, the Antichrist desecrates the temple. It ends the sacrifice. Sets up an idol of himself there to be worshipped. So there's a temple there. By the way, Brother Larry said in the video about the red heifer here a few months ago. Many of you read that. That's something the Jews are trying to come up with to cleanse this new temple. I mean, it's, it's in the, the, the ones that are truly Jewish in their thinking and their religion. They're looking for that temple to be rebuilt right today. And when the Antichrist gives the word, man, look, this, they're going to go on it. And, and it might even happen, you know, they may even somehow get started before that, but it's got to be somehow connected, I would think, with the covenant, the preparations of being made. So there'll be a tremendous expectation among the Jews at this time that the, the, the Messiah is about to come. And now they find, <laughs> see, they, they never thought he came the first time or died or resurrected. It's not a coming back for them. They're still in that mode. He's coming once. This is what this is all about. And I believe the temple will be rebuilt from its proper place, just this side of the eastern gate. And the lost probably will, be, will remain in the outer court of the Gentiles. Matthew 24, <laughs> verses 6 and 7 8. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, seeing that you see that you are not alarmed, for those things shall take those things must take place. But that is not yet the year. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We're translating the nation, ethnos. In Greek, ethnic group against ethnic group. That's why it says. There's a repeat here, almost in the Old Testament, synonymous parallelism type of thing. People against people. People group against people group, and kingdom of nation against nation. It's not necessarily national wars. Just think about it. What we see in this world today. Ethnos against ethnos, everywhere you look. So the second thing he mentions, international, international turmoil, turmoil and war. He gives no details concerning the wars and rumors of war in Matthew 24, 6. However, the first two seals of Revelation 6, verses 1 to 4, represent political conquest and war. The rider on the white horse, not Christ, Comes with a bow, no arrows. He conquers peaceably at first, the Antichrist. And of course, the Antichrist, the head of that ten nation confederacy, that also comes from Daniel and other prophecies and the book of Revelation. The one of the, the ten heads <coughs> will take over, replace the three. The Antichrist starts out as one among many. He's increasing his power to leave his gift. 
And that's what's precipitating these wars and, and such as well. This would be large scale international turmoil, but it equates with seal one and seal two of Revelation six. Those of you who have studied Revelation recently familiar with that. Moving on to verse seven. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now we have wars and rumors of wars today. We have people from time to time who claim to be the Messiah, and we certainly have famines and earthquakes. These are not new things. Just a, a, a more intense uh, manifestation of these things, probably. The, the judgments and the events of the tribulation start out slowly, and they just intensify, 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 and ramp up to the very end. In fact, the seventh seal contains all the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains all of the bowls of wrath. So at the end, it's just major, major stuff. There are those now, there are those who interpret Matthew 24, verses 4 to 7, to be before the tribulation. But to me, it, it equates exactly with what we find in Revelation 6. There are also those who believe that they, Jesus was talking about the, the tribulation, but they... There are those who emphasize, and this may be well, well done, they refer to what's going on in our world today as shadows of the tribulation. In other words, as the tribulation grows nearer, we can see more precisely how it's all going to fall in place. Uh, it doesn't mean we should be making dates. It might be five years. It might be 500 years. It might be five days. We don't know. But think about the Noah being able to buy and sell in the days of the Antichrist. We're there. If people in power don't want you to buy or sell something, they'll stop your credit card or they know everything is going on. So in the computer age, we see this. A hundred years ago, this would just be a... How can anybody even conceive of that? I, I, I remember back in the 60s and 70s when I was reading the late great planet Earth and such in those days. I'm like, how could these things be? Well, I haven't got that anymore in my mind. I'm thinking, there's no problem. Well, of course, it was no problem for God all along, but you see these shadows must have come. <coughs> then there's regional catastrophes. Labeled this last of the famines in the earthquakes. It says in various places, so it won't be worldwide. Seals 3 and 4, Revelation 6, equate with these things. Luke adds plague to the list, chapter 21, verse 11. So the first half of the tribulation contained the first four seals, at least the first four seals of Revelation 6. False messiahs, international turmoil and war, and regional catastrophes. Remember, Jesus is giving a prophetic overview. Revelation gives the specifics. Now, before I give an application, that's a lot to throw at you, especially if you haven't been a believer for that long or you've just not been in a church situation where you've had uh, these things talked about. Many of you have, and obviously benefit from being your Conrad Bible Church. 
But let's just stop for a minute. Let's take a deep breath. This is incredible. If nothing else, it's absolutely incredible what Jesus said, what said it by John in the book of Revelation, which was written 60 years later, and what was said by Daniel 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. All of this just fits like a glove in place. It's just marvelous to behold when you begin to, to put it together. But is there something that's just totally confusing in your mind or maybe something I've missed uh, or something I should have said to clarify? I know we, when it comes to prophecy, we're all afraid to say much of anything because <laughs> it's just a deep subject. Yes. The mystery of the second coming, as I simplify that, I, I can't give you the references, you may be familiar with this. But it was so to communicate that to the Jewish people, it was associated with a particular feast, and they'd send one of their sons out onto a hillside to watch for a star constellation that triggered the, the feast. The interesting thing, scientifically, they've looked at that particular constellation and it never occurs at the same time. And they associated that. It's not a regular intervals of any way. No, it's totally random. But they've proven it scientifically that that particular constellation that triggered the Jewish feast never happens on the same day, and they associated that to the second coming of Christ, which kind of takes the mystery. I wish I could remember all the references. Well, I have not brought it up. you have a reference, or I'll see if I can find it because I read it a number of years ago. It kind of satisfied me. On we don't know when yeah. that comes back. Sure. Thank you. Anybody else? I don't know if I've asked everybody to read the, the verses I've given out. I just get wound up in this. And I, don't, <laughs> I don't know whether I've covered it, encompassed this or moved it out of place, but I think we're good to move on to some of this, though. Application. The first application I got here is Jesus is coming for his own, and we should be looking for his return. John 14, 1 to 6. Does somebody have that? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. I thought your heart would be troubled. I don't know about you. I have plenty of reasons for my heart to be troubled these days. I think we all do. And Jesus said, well, your heart be troubled. I'm going away, but I've prepared a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you. That's the rapture. Uh, Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for the blessed hope. That again is the rapture, but he's coming for us. Anticipate. Let's move on to number two. We will accompany him because we have, he's come back for us already, but it comes to his second coming. The end of the tribulation, we will accompany him when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth. 
and we should confidently anticipate it. By the way, we're not only a company here, but we'll have a role to play in those days in serving him. Uh, now, here I want to go to something you may not have associated with this. Uh, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. You'll recognize it. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer. Maybe more appropriately should have been called the Disciples' Prayer, but he's telling them to pray this way. And he says, Thy, we're using the King James, that's why I first got it in my head. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we should be praying. <coughs> thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That does not mean that God's will is going to be done or his kingdom is going to come without him coming back. That's prophetic prayer. That, that's when you look around and your hearts are troubled and you say, Lord, thy kingdom come. Please. That's, that's what that's about. Now, if we have that attitude, it's going to filter into our daily lives. But it's about the real kingdom and the real king and the real events, which the Bible tells us. I think I put some lyrics on here of a song called The Lord's Prayer Cures by Matt Maher. Now, my wife and I have been listening to this. It's like the top, top song Christians. Something or other. She keeps Top up with 20 it. Okay, <laughs> and I, I love the song and, and the words. And it's very moving. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done on earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart. Now, as long as you understand the kingdom that we're praying for is not going to happen in our heart. That's real and that's coming. As long as we understand that, we can sing this. And I don't know what Mars theology is. I love his writing, I love his singing. But I, I think there is a point here where if we are looking for the real kingdom, it will affect our heart. In fact, the rest of the Lord's Prayer says things like, give us this day our daily bread. I'm so much worried about my daily bread. I don't, I'm not really concerned about whether God's going to give me my daily bread when he's got that kingdom coming for me. It all connects. And forgive those who sin against us. Well, why? God's forgiven me. And I'm going to be in that kingdom. It affects my perspective and outlook my life. What else is in the Lord's Prayer? Daily bread, forgiveness. But at the end it says, and thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's again, a real kingdom. So the Lord's Prayer is not just about, some people have this mistaken idea that the kingdom is just in our hearts. You know, the Holy Spirit's in my heart, but the kingdom's not there. Okay? 
because the Holy Spirit's in my heart, I'm a citizen of that kingdom and I'm going to be in the real kingdom. So it does affect my relationship with others, my relationship with God, my trust, my faith, everything. This is the importance of the second coming and understanding it. I used to be enamored with all the details of prophecy. Now I'm just enamored with I'm closer, I'm just a little bit closer to the day. Okay? <laughs> um, it's getting more real with each passing year. I mean, it's getting more necessary with each moment we experience in this world. So it does us some good to kind of review these things. Just stand back and take that deep breath and look at it all and say, how do you describe it? How do you... Besides the importance of it, it's beyond anything we've ever experienced. But yet it's ours. It's like my grandson. He's all excited about gold, but he has no idea what's going to be wrong. <laughs> That's sort of kind of way we are. We do it a lot, but not nearly as much as we'd like, for sure. Anybody else have a final thought? I like how Revelation ends in 22, verse 20, where he testifies these things, surely I am coming quickly. And then John adds, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. We tend to think it's never been as bad as it is right now. There's been plenty of times it's been as bad, probably. The world is just corrupt. All. All right, we'll read a little bit further. We're going to come to the second half of the tribulation for a few verses. And then he's going to stop and he's going to go back to the midpoint and talk about that. Let's separate the two, the one first and the second half. It's just, there's lots of exciting stuff. Okay. 24, 25. We're just, we're just getting into it. Let's pray. Oh, thank you.